0: Y'all welcome, my name is Simon Stokes, I'm the REF Campus Minister here, uh, and it's good to be here with y'all tonight um, to worship with you, um, to sing with you, to pray with you, and to to sit here and think on what does it mean for us to be people that are made in God's image and are broken by sin and yet are also um, called by God to know Him and to know one another. And I want to say as we start that if this is your first time here, I especially want to throw a welcome at you um, and say we're glad that you're here. Uh, that RUF is a Christ-centered community on campus, uh, which part of that is is Christ, it's Jesus. Um, we're not all people necessarily who might uh, believe or trust in Jesus yet, but we're all people who we really believe um, need Jesus, whether we understand that or not. Um, but there's also a community aspect of this too, where um, RUF doesn't depend just on me or our interns, uh, but it actually depends on us together, Um, Loving each other, loving our campus, um, owning this as our community, and uh, seeking one another in that, seeking God in that. So we're glad that you're here. We're glad you're with us tonight. Um, We're going through a series on the book of Ephesians, which is a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus. And uh, when you think about it, it's kind of amazing that Paul wrote this letter. If you know anything about his life, he was someone that started off totally opposed to Christianity, And he persecuted Christians and he hated Christians. And then God kind of grabbed him and showed him his grace and showed him his love and forgave him and called him to himself. And Paul just never got over that. It just totally changed his life. And he's writing this book, or he's writing this letter, of Ephesians, to help us understand what God's grace is. and What does it mean to know God and know his grace? So this is Ephesians um, chapter 2, Paul writing to his church. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us and get started.
1: Jesus, we do pray
0: that um, wherever we're coming to you tonight, um, from whatever place we come from on campus, um, Lord, that you would show us your grace. Um, Lord, that you would heal those who are hurting, that you would help those who are doubting to wrestle um, with your truth. God, that you would uh, bring life to the dead, and Lord, that you would help us to love you um, because we see how much you've loved us first through your cross and through your resurrection. God, call us to yourself through your word tonight. Um, call us by your spirit and set us free to live and to love on this campus. In your name we pray, amen. You know, I've been reading recently on uh, kind of the epidemic of millennial burnout, um, if you don't know, a millennial is kind of your generation. I'm technically a millennial, um, though I'm like 10 years older than most of you at this point. Uh, but kind of the sense that a lot of people in our generation have of feeling burned out all the time and not knowing why. Um, but people feel it really powerfully. And here's kind of what people started to put their finger on. It's not just kind of a UNC problem. It's a lot of people's problem. And it's this kind of idea that we've internalized the idea that we should be working all the time. That being average is the same as being in last place. That we're not allowed to be tired even though we are tired. Uh, that our life is on social media for everyone to see and everyone else's life is on social media for us to see and kind of compare one another to and kind of feel a lot of FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, when we see people enjoying things that you know we're not invited to or we don't see, uh, we overcommit <coughs> constantly. But I always manage to make our deadlines with work. But then it happens that we kind of pull out at the last minute on friends and relationships, and for people who are closest get angry or disappointed. Um, we feel guilty and overwhelmed, and you don't know how to rest. And there's always another thing to do. I mean, people who experience this tend to wonder when was the last time they watched a movie without scrolling through their phone, or when was the last time they read a book. Without getting up after five minutes and maybe doing something else, or thinking about the to-do list of, "I've got to clean, I've got to exercise, I've got to do um, another task for work or my job. Um, we should always be making a significant impact on the world. And this is not just you. I mean, this is all kinds of people all over the world feeling this kind of burnout. That all these things that are promised life and opportunity and freedom feel like they brought anxiety and depression. And in some sense, I think the Apostle Paul would say death. That we feel powerless to do anything about it. And we're not the first people to wrestle with that. I mean, lots of people through history have felt anxiety or depression or, you know, a lot to do on their plate. But we are part of a generation that has really taken those things and ramped them up to a whole other level. And when you feel trapped in a system like that, what I suggest is that you need a stronger power to free you. That when we look inside of ourselves, what we tend to find is that we don't have the power. But then when we look outside of ourselves to things like professors or even parents or culture, we find that it's caught in the same system. Like That helped build the system. Like They're powerless, right? I should you think about it like this with me. When I was in St. Louis, uh, second St. Louis reference of the night, treat yourself. um, I I helped run group therapy uh, for three years with this ministry that I was a part of. And we weren't working with alcoholics, though we based a lot of things in our ministry off of uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and what was called their big book, which is kind of the Bible for AA. It's like, here's the philosophy, the vision, how we run meetings, all that kind of stuff. And the big book in AA has a really interesting... Section on the importance of belief in a higher power for people who are caught or trapped or addicted. And they write this It says, If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. But we found that such codes and morals do not save us, no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral, we could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might. But the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power—that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a greater power than ourselves. But where and how were we to find this power? Man, isn't that a good question? Especially as you wrestle with man, all these things seem to have power over me. I feel so trapped. But all this stuff that breathes down my neck all the time, isn't that a great question? Where do you find the power? What I want to suggest tonight is that this is not a problem that can be solved by more education or effort, but it will only be solved by the power of God breaking into our lives and exposing what is dead and powerless inside of us to the life and the power of Jesus. And so, what I want to do is I want to look at this text tonight, and I want to ask two things. I'm to ask, what sort of death is there in sin? And what sort of life is there in Christ? What sort of death is there in sin? What sort of life is there in Christ? So let's start there with what sort of death in there is sin. Look, you can read this, can't you? And you can wonder, you know, are people really this bad? Like, is it really as bad as what Paul is saying here? Like, Paul is not gloating. Paul is not trying to shame you or me. Paul is being a physician of the soul. And he's diagnosing so that we could be healed and have life. And I almost hesitate to even you know, try to prove um, how messed up the world is, how messed up we are. I mean, I, I just feel like we see this stuff all the time. That when you look at the rising suicide rate in America, that even though we're a country with all this wealth and all this security, people are so unhappy they would take their lives. Uh, the opioid epidemic... That there are so many people who just cannot deal and do not want to deal with how hard life is. That they check out with prescription painkillers. The destruction of the environment because of greed. Uh, Terrorism. Like, I'm going to get you, you're going to get me, and we're just going to go back and forth for generations. Uh, The looming threat of nuclear war, if you want to go really big picture, right? Right. Um, that we could wipe ourselves out as a species in like 10 minutes if we wanted to. I mean, there's so many messed up things about the world. And that's not just the world out there, but that's us. We're part of this system. I mean, has anyone ever looked at you and said, you know, nobody's perfect? And you said, oh, you're right. Well, except for you, you know, and me maybe. Like No, like everyone, when they hear that phrase, is like, oh, yeah, totally. Nobody's perfect. I mean, Christians believe the only perfect person ever got killed by us on a cross. And the question is, isn't, for me, I think, is this true? But what do you do with it? Like, what, how do you fix this problem? I mean, is it education? Is it some sort of national security response? Like, is it um, more equal justice for the poor? Like, what is going to get into the human heart and heal us and fix us, and not just fix society, but make the people who make society whole? Because Paul's telling us that it's universal, this is everyone. I mean, think about the image of death here that Paul throws at us. When people are dead, they have no control of themselves, do they? And one of the weird things about this is that it's two kind of aspects to this. There's a passive aspect of death, and there's an active aspect of death that Paul is talking about here. I mean, the active aspect, he says, you once walked. I mean, how is a dead person supposed to walk? But apparently they are. Like, and that's not traveling from point A to point B. That's the way that you're going through life, is that you're walking. You're carrying out desires And what Paul is saying is that apart from God, you're cut off from life. That you can look alive, even feel alive, seem alive. But like cut roses at Valentine's Day, which are removed from their source of life, you will fade, you will wilt. You are dead in yourself. And there's a passive aspect of death here too. He says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are following the course of the world. You are following the prince of the power of air. Like you're following, you're being led. You're not totally in control. It's like zombies in a horror movie where they're chasing people and they're trying to get people, and yet they're also dead at the same time. Like they don't have a choice over what they're doing. It's kind of what they are. They're zombies. And Paul is saying this is all of us. He says you're following the prince of the power of air. What does that mean, right? (laughs) We look at he's talking about the devil, but it's not just. Okay, he's in the air. It, what he means when he says that is he's not ruling from heaven, and yet he's not part of the earth. He's somewhere in between, and he's in charge, and he's ruling over things. But the big problem here is not just that he's a part of this picture, and that we're being led by him and dealt you know, by with him. But he's actually, it's dealing with the world that Paul talks about, the flesh. The world here is not the material world. God made that, and he enjoys that. But world is this system. World is systemic injustice, if you want to talk about it in that way. But it's the whole system of culture and beliefs and thoughts and feelings that we as a culture or that cultures of the world make and that are just totally counter to God. It's like... Did you go to Franklin Street after we beat uh, Duke the other night? And you would try to get close to where they were burning the couches, and you kind of get sucked into all the movement of people and things. And if you got sucked into it, you couldn't really get out of it. I mean, you would just kind of get pulled by the flow of people until you were right in front of a couch, and it's like, okay, I got a jump, right? <laughs> and you didn't have a choice to do with it. Like, that's what Paul means when he says the world It's like you get sucked into the way that just things are and the flow of people, and you get pulled into it and you can't help it. Flesh here is not our body. God made our body. He loves your body. But flesh is the part of us that goes counter to God, that runs counter to God. It's the way we think, the way we desire, that says, I'm going to do life on my own, the way that I want to do it. And what Paul is saying is that people are falling into evil, we fall into evil. And it's like you fell into this rushing river and you just got sucked in. And you couldn't help yourself. And yet, there's also an active part of you that's participating in it. And enjoying it and loving it. And because of that we become these, what he calls, children of wrath. That's our state by nature. Which I know is heavy to say. Because we come from a culture where people are just looked at as inherently good. And Paul is saying that's actually not the case. But when you think about it like this, think about it from God's perspective. That if we live on a campus that sometimes feels like a powder keg, right? Where there's things that people just are outraged about. And there's a lot to be outraged in the world. But if you could see from God's perspective all the evil that's ever happened, and all the evil that's in every person, and all the evil throughout history, and you could see it all at once... And it was before you. And you hated evil and you saw the way that it tore the world apart. I mean, think about how outraged you would be. Wrath here is not God's just like going off the handle and just willy-nilly smiting people left and right. But it's this measured, controlled anger about the way that the world is. And some of y'all are angry about the way the world is. Like, think about it from God's end. I mean the whole point of the Bible, the Old Testament, the sacrifices of the prophets, of the cross Is God dealing with his anger and giving people a way out And yet people are led into that by sin and they participate in it And it destroys us Two stories for a year I read about it out in the news this last week um, Both of them have a theme, see if you can figure what, out what that is there was a guy in Texas uh, who was looking for a place to smoke pot. And he couldn't find anywhere in his house or his car. He wanted to lounge. He wanted to hang out, I'm assuming. Um, and just really relax. And whatever your perspective on you know that is, he broke into a house in his neighborhood. And he thought it was abandoned. He hadn't seen anybody in there in a while. He breaks in and he goes into the house and tries to find like a quiet room by himself where people won't see. And what he finds is there is a live Bengal tiger in a cage surrounded by like meat. Like someone had left it stuff to eat. And they just kind of left it there in the cage. And the guy is so freaked out as he's trespassing in this person's house that he runs out of the house and calls the police. And kind of narks on himself. Um... <laughs> Second story, a guy named uh, Walter Earl Morrison, 20 years old, from Phoenix, Arizona, this last week stole a diamond worth $160,000, and then he traded for $20 worth of pot. Genius, I know. Um, <laughs> those stories are kind of funny, but that's, that's a picture of our lives with sin, is that people, you and I, are made with this incredible dignity and value and worth, and then we trade that dignity for nothing. We trade it for money. We trade it for sex. We trade it for the illusion of control or power or success. And as we go deeper into the darkness of sin, what we find is not what we wanted. We find a monster. We find something worse than a tiger in a cage. And like, it's deadly serious. And part of what this text is asking is, you know, dead people are blind. If we show up this way, how would we know that we're like this? I mean, we think that so many decisions that we make on our own are our decisions. And yet, so much of what we're actually doing is because of products that are, of forces that are outside of us. If you're here and you know that you're not a Christian or you're other than a Christian, do you recognize this about yourself? is it starting to break in the realization that, and this is me I mean have you ever hurt someone that you loved I mean not on accident but like have you ever taken like a verbal knife and just jabbed it in and turned it and I have have you ever done something that you hated and you swore to yourself I'm never doing that again never ever again and then you do it and you swear to yourself you're not doing that again. And then you do it. And you make the same promise. And you do it. And you do it. And you do it. And you do it. And you can't help yourself. I have. But Paul is not saying that this is just you. He's saying it's me. It's us. It's we. And what I want to suggest is that there's freedom in this because it can at least help us to give up on the project of proving that we don't need God. It's freedom to say... This is who I am. I don't have to pretend anymore. And that's a good thing. So if that is the reality of sin, what do you do with this? Like, what is life in Christ? Look at verse 4 here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Look, the main point of all this is not what you and I are like. The main point of this is what God is like. That as dead in sin and trespasses as we are, God just cannot help but jump into the mess. That God has completely, unreservedly, lovingly committed Himself to His people. That for some reason, which is rooted in God, being God, He's attached Himself to us. He's rescued us. He's acted for us. That wrath should come, but God gave us grace. Separation should be ours forever, but God has brought us close. That we should be ruled by the devil in slavery and misery forever. But God has placed above us the rule of the Lord Jesus. Who will rule us with joy and peace and love and kindness. And what Paul is saying is the initiative always and completely lies with God. I mean look at verse 7 here. Why has God shown this grace? Like why did he love you? So that he could love you. So he can delight in someone who used to be a corpse but is now his bride forever and ever. That God is so good and so powerful that through Jesus he died to bring the dead to life. That's it's his nature and his character to act this way. That he just can't help himself. That if we were passive in death, we are passive in life too. Paul says he raised us up that he's given us something of Christ's life to those who were dead. That he's decided to deal with us exactly like he's dealing with Jesus. That what is true of him is true of us. That if he is alive before God, then we are as well. That if he's exalted before God in his right hand, so are we. That if the Father loves the Son with a white-hot passion, then he loves you in that way as well. That this is privilege, this is honor, this is security, this is responsibility. That come with Christ's death and resurrection for you. And these are not just acts that benefit us. They are acts in which you are included. Look, do you know that if you are one of God's people, that it would be unjust for God to ever punish you for sin? It would be totally unjust for Him to do that. I mean, as guilty and as ashamed as you feel sometimes... That the punishment for your sins has already occurred on the cross, that you are so tied to Jesus through faith that as far as God is concerned, you have already died for your sins, and you have already been raised to life on the third day. To have faith in Jesus is not to have kind of a new fact. It's to ha- be transferred into this new sphere of reality, to have a new master, a new Lord. And what Paul is saying is that this is a gift to be received. It's not something that you or I do. It is God's work in you. So you can't mess it up. You can't drop it. You can't lose it. You don't have to lie awake at night wondering, are you good enough or have you messed up for the final time? Or will you mess up in the future for the final time? It is God's work in you. And so you will persevere in it because Christ himself will persevere inside of you. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. And faith is the means by which that grace is received. Because grace is not a thing. It's not this outside thing. It's a person. It's God. It's Father, Son, and Spirit. And real faith is not something that you have. Real faith is someone that you trust. This means that faith is not just knowledge. it's part of that. It's certainly not just a feeling that we have. It's more than that. But faith is an act of trust and rest. Faith has this adhesive quality to it. It binds you to God. It's how Christ's past is bound to us. It's how His future and His present are connected to us. Faith is us trusting and resting in God. I actually thought about it like this this last week. um, That on Sunday our church, uh, Church of the Good Shepherd, had this kind of college lunch or kind of grad lunch. And we got invited to it. And on the way from the sanctuary, which is at one end of the church, to the fellowship hall at the other, where the soup and the um, cheese sandwiches were, I picked up my two-year-old daughter, Caroline, and I put her on my shoulders, and I held her there. And her legs were dangling down, and she had a hold of my hair like this, and she was like chit-chatting with me. And she trusted that I was going to walk her to the place where she would be fed, and that I knew where I was going. And we got there, and she got fed. And I would never have let her fall. I would not have dropped her. That will not happen, as long as like, I'm her dad and she's in my arms. Fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> do you know that's you too? That faith is you clinging to God, but grace is God clinging to you. And grace comes first. I mean, consider how this shapes the way that you think of the Christian life. That when you come to see yourself as somebody who's naturally distant from God, I mean, it makes sense why you would feel spiritually dry at times, right? You're not naturally in tune with God. And yet the power of this is that even if I don't feel naturally in tune with Him, He's holding on to me. He's got me. On the other hand, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, but you're find yourself interested in RUF and interested in Jesus and you feel compelled by this community of people where it seems like maybe something of God is here. Man, what I want to suggest is that you can ask God to do something for yourself that you can't do for you. And that even if you don't know what the next step is, He does. And He can be at work in that. Paul says here also that God has made us alive. Look, we can think, um, I'm a Christian. Or if I become a Christian, it'll be be because I thought to myself, okay, I believe this is true, and then God loved me. But the passage says that God does it all. That if you make a commitment to Jesus, it's because God has made you alive, and then you respond. That this is about death to life. And just like dead people have no control over themselves... Babies have no choice in being born either. Why is that so important? Guys, I don't know about you, but I've been around Christians a bit, and this has certainly been me at times. But Christians who feel pretty morally superior can look down on people who are maybe not as moral as them, and they can say, ugh, like, how could they? Like, don't they know? Don't they want to be good? Don't they know this is like killing them and killing the world? And it's arrogant. It's like this us versus them mentality. But when you see yourself in this passage, I mean, what do you see? It's all us's, right? I mean, do you look down on people? Are you like hypercritical of people? I know that you know the right answer to this, but did Jesus have to die for everyone but you? I mean, because sometimes it can feel like on our insides, like, okay, I know what the right answer to that is, but when I look at these people out here, man, I am way better than them. And what this passage is saying is, no, you're not. God had to die for you because you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Do you know what you're saved from? Is maybe the better question. There's a family in Australia uh, this last Christmas. And because Australia is in the Southern Hemisphere, they were at the beach on Christmas Eve. And they were swimming and they were playing and they were doing what families do when they go to the beach. And the 11-year-old daughter is on the shore picking up pretty seashells. And she hands uh, two really beautiful seashells that she finds to her dad who puts them into um, his swim trunks, which has like a mesh short in it and is right there next to his leg. And he gets home, and he takes out the seashells, and he looks and he sees inside the shells that there's kind of something in there, so he kind of pokes at it. And what it is, is in each shell there's a tiny blue-ringed octopus, um, which I didn't know anything about until I read this article, but according to the article and the internet, so obviously this is true, um, has an, each one of those octopuses has enough venom in it to kill 26 adults in just like a few minutes. And so the dad is like, wait, what? Because he recognized what this is. He's Australian, and there's a lot of supernative <laughs> <laughs> animals down there. So you memorize those animals, <laughs> especially if you ever go. Um, and so he recognizes what this animal is, and he goes to the hospital just to be sure. And he gets there and gets checked out, and he's okay. He has dodged the bullet And yet the person that's reporting this quotes him as saying, "Um, it's pretty scary to think that I could have been bitten and died in front of my kids on Christmas Eve. And I read that and I thought, true. But I bet Christmas morning was pretty sweet. And do you know what you've been saved from? Like, death to life. God has given it to you for free. And do you see that this is the cure to apathy in the Christian life? Like you can grow up around the church, you can grow up around the Bible, you can grow up singing these songs and think, great, Jesus, the cross, yeah, no big deal. I yeah, I'm into that stuff. I'll go hear a good talk, I'll go like to TNC or TNW, sorry. (laughs) TNC, is that like the country music station? Um, But you can grow up around these things and you can think, ah, sweet. But it doesn't really feel like that big of a deal. And you're kind of numb to it. You've got other things on your mind. You've got grad school to think about. You've got classes. You've got work. There's a lot of boxes that need to be checked. And there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done. And you may not say it out loud very often, but it kind of feels like God is this helpful, sometimes extra thing that we can do. If we have extra time and it's not inconvenient. That RUF is this helpful, sometimes extra thing that we can do. If it's not too much effort. And it's not too inconvenient. But as soon as something more fun or maybe more pressing or some bigger commitment at times it feels like comes along, then I'm out. And Do you know what you're saved from? Are you apathetic? Do you know that you're not just saved from God's wrath, but you're saved to God's life? That there are good works that God has prepared before you that only you can do. No one else can do them. No one else can reach some of the people on campus that you can reach. No one else can love your roommate but the other person who lives in their room, which is you. No one can care for all the things on campus that God has called us into. No one can care for this community but the community. Do you know that you've been called... To love and give yourself to the people that God has put in front of you. That God's prepared good works for you to do. And they don't prove that you're worth loving. What they do is they prove that you've been loved, they set you free. God's love sets you free to care, to do, to reach out to people. To pursue people who are not yet Christians and to bring them to a place like this where they would actually hear the gospel and maybe be saved. To pursue people who are hurting in your life and to care for them and to love them and to commit to them. To commit to this community with your time and your talents and your efforts. Because God has given this before you to do good things that are significant and worth your time. Look, everybody here has talents and gifts and abilities like, what are they? Use them for the good of God's kingdom. I mean, Real talk here for a second. Uh, most of our musicians are graduating in May. We really need people to be musicians and to play music and to lead us in worship. I mean, if you can do that, like, we need you. Has God given that to you as something that maybe only you can do in this community? regardless all of our job is to love and care for the things that god has put in front of us and to do that because god has loved us and set us free in the gospel and so what i do is i want to end with this there's an interview on uh conan o'brien's new podcast called conan needs a friend and it's an amazing podcast you should listen to this um, if you're like looking for a podcast to listen to. It's really funny. Conan's just basically talking to other comedians and laughing and telling jokes. Um, but he had an interview with Stephen Colbert. He used to be on The Daily Show, then had The Colbert Show, and now he's um, on Late Night. And Colbert is telling this story about how he got into comedy. And he said that he was this young guy. He's a philosophy major, and then he goes to Northwestern University in Chicago and gets a theater major. And he wanted to be an actor, like an actor-actor, like a serious actor who would call himself a thespian without a hint of irony um, when he met you. And he didn't want to just play Hamlet. He wanted to be Hamlet. He wanted his brooding, depressed self to be validated by this occupation and by an audience. And so he's wearing black all the time. He's growing out whatever like, little beard he can grow out. Um, in his own words, he's kind of this like poet-jerk. And he brooded at people, he was depressed at people. And then when he's in Chicago, he happens onto improv comedy. And he likes not having to learn lines, and he liked the sense that you know anything goes and there's no wrong answers, and it's all crazy and made up, and you're just kind of going with it. And he had all these plans to be an, a serious, trained actor, but then he gets hired by Second City, which is this amazing improv group in Chicago. And in his words, these people broke him. Like, they just utterly broke him. One night he's up on stage, he's trying to be serious and he's never changed his script, he's never not professional, even though he's in a comedy show. But he's up there and he's playing across from these actors who are his friends and the skit is, his friend is a woman, uh, has got these like hillbilly teeth in and he's trying to like ask her on a date and she turns towards him with these hillbilly teeth in and she starts to make fun of him on stage about this zit that's on his nose. And he cannot help himself, and he's just he's laughing hysterically in front of the audience. And the more he laughs, the more she pushes him to laugh, and he just kind of goes with it. And he's he's still trying to be the serious actor, but he just he just falls apart on stage. And at the end of the bit, he's so mad at his friend for making him laugh that he runs off the stage. And he runs to the nearest bathroom and he locks himself in the bathroom. And he basically just is like ugly crying in the bathroom by himself because he wanted to be this serious trained actor. And his friend and another one of their friends comes outside of the door and they hear him crying. And they start to mock him through the door. Like, oh, Stephen's crying because we made him laugh. In a comedy bit. Oh! <laughs> and he has this moment where his friends are like loving him and being with him in that. And they're also being so honest with him at the same time. And he sees himself for like a second. And he sees what kind of a jerk he's being. And how outrageous and rude he is. And yet how loved he is by his friends. And he says it just utterly breaks him. I mean, he came out of the bathroom transformed. And it set the stage for the rest of his comedy career. And I think that's a really good picture of what friendship can do in your life. I think it's an even better picture of what the gospel does in our lives. That God on the cross has shown us in our our pride and our sense of importance, of the sense that, like, this thing that I'm doing is all there is, and it's all I think about, and I'm so anxious about it all the time. And God, like, gets crucified, and He shows us, like, where that leads and what that does. It is hard truth, and yet at the same time, God loves us in it and is so for us that He does get crucified for you, and He does unite Himself to you and give you all things in Him. And so what I want to say is man, if God has done that for you, man, love the people he's put in front of you. Have a good party and invite people to it. And celebrate them and make merry with them and enjoy them. And tell funny, silly stories about yourself. Christians should throw the best parties because God has invited us to a party. And He's loved us and been honest with us and brought us from death into life. So commit yourself to these people. Commit yourself to love. Because God has committed Himself to you. Be transformed by that. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus we thank you that uh, you transform us through your love through your truth, through your patience God open our eyes to that reality open our eyes to your gospel God if there are people here who are dead in their sins and their trespasses God make them alive and raise them up with you in Christ and God if there are people here who are wrestling with faith as we all wrestle God hold on to them and make them know that you're holding on to them But God, show us your love in Christ and set us free. In your name we pray. Amen.